Monitor Monday is recorded before a live online audience. It's morning in America. It's Monitor Monday. For rural hospitals and small town clinics, big city health systems, and healthcare professionals, Monday means Monitor Monday. And Monday means gearing up for another week of audits by the government and health plans. Here now with the latest regulatory and audit news is the publisher of Rack Monitor and the host of Monitor Monday, Chuck Buck. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the live edition of Monitor Monday. On today's broadcast, that blog post from CMS Administrator Seema Verma that we reported last Monday is still causing concern for providers. We'll learn why when Dr. John Hall joins us later in the broadcast. Also on today's broadcast, what should you do when a government agent comes knocking on your door? Shannon DeCon is standing by to report a true story of a doc who didn't know what to do and is now in deep, deep trouble. What does housing have to do with health? Alan Fink-Samnick has an explanation. Alan also has a Monitor Monday listener survey. Nicole Emanuel has a Monitor Monday rack report. And healthcare attorney David Glazer has another example of risky business. But we begin this morning with Dr. Ronald Hirsch, who is making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. Monday rounds is sponsored by R1 RCM. Here now making his Monday rounds is Dr. Ronald Hirsch. Well, good morning, everyone. I suspect many of you may have heard about the President's Executive Order on Kidney Disease that was announced last week. Much of the attention was given to President Trump when he stated in the press conference that the kidney has a very special place in the heart. This caused nephrologists and radiologists all across the country to pull out their anatomy books to see if they'd been looking in the wrong place all these years. But once that was sorted out, there was much to like about this. Most importantly, is that they seem intent on increasing the number of patients who receive kidney and kidney and pancreas transplants. Of course, to increase the number of transplants, they need to increase the number of donors. For most donors, it's an act of altruism, but there are many, likely many more who would donate um, based on altruism, but can't afford to be a donor. Now, it'll be interesting to see what financial incentives are put in place that can meet the ethical balance of adequate compensation without looking like they are buying organs. But I'll leave the ethical discussions to Ellen. And part of the government's program to reduce costs and improve care is a proposal of a new mandatory payment model that will cover half the patients in the country with kidney disease. It will reward providers based on the rate of transplantation in their patients and the rate of the use of home dialysis instead of dialysis in dialysis centers. As you can imagine, it's complicated, and I'll be scouring the pages to look for interesting tidbits to report here. But what, not, what did not get any publicity was another mandatory payment model that was proposed at the same time, simply called the radiation oncology model. In this program, CMS will pay a fixed amount for each 90-day episode of care to both the radiation oncologist and the facility providing the radiation for 17 different cancers. They're also going to pay hospital outpatient providers the same amount as freestanding radiation oncology providers, another move by CMS in promoting site-neutral payments with an equal payment irregardless of the site of service. They're also going to withhold 2% of the payment amount for quality measures. Now, the model commentary on this was very interesting for a couple reasons. First, in a roundabout way, they accuse freestanding radiation centers of overutilizing radiation therapy. 
noting that despite the fact that they get paid less per treatment, they currently get paid an average of 11% more per course of therapy than hospital-based centers. They also note with this model that they're going to be closely monitoring providers to ensure there's no gaming the system. They will be watching for cherry picking or attempting to select only low acuity patients who cost less, but they will also be watching for providers who encourage higher acuity patients to not choose them as a provider, a tactic that CMS refers to as lemon dropping. So it looks like CMS is moving full steam ahead with a quest for quality over quantity. I'm sure we're going to see more programs soon. Thanks, Chuck. Thank you, Dr. Hirsch. That was the vice president of R1 RCM, Ronald Hirsch, MD. Dr. Hirsch was making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. And now with the Monitor Monday RAC report, here is healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel. Good morning, Nicole. Good morning, and thank you for having me. Has anyone out there ever felt that a CMS contractor, whether it's a RAC or a MAC or a TPE, ZPIC or UPIC, whatever the acronym, were doing a cruddy job at their audit? We've always said the only way to fight back is through the administrative law process because, good gracious, we don't want to go to federal court and get dismissed based on failure to exhaust administrative remedies. However, a case that was filed April 2019, a home health care company, Simply Home Healthcare, filed on behalf of hospice and home health care providers, a lawsuit against HHS and the Medicare contractor AdvanceMed on the basis of tortious interference with a business contract. What that means is that Simply Home Healthcare is funding this lawsuit, which is not an inexpensive task, but the case, if successful, would benefit every other home health care or hospice provider in the country. Actually, it would benefit, I mean, if Simply Home can actually win against Advanced Med, saying that Advanced Med's auditing procedures are so egregious that it's interfering with Simply's business contract to provide Medicare services, this case will impact every healthcare provider in the country. The class asserts that the Medicare contractor, AdvanceMed, misapplies laws and regulations in order to inflate billable hours and win more contracts with CMS. In the class action, the payments had been suspended the home health care company claimed it had provided records in response to the overpayment assertion. But the contractor then changed the basis of payment suspension from overpayment to fraud without complying with federal regulations, requiring the contractor to provide findings on which the suspension was continued and without any consultation with law enforcement. The home health care company stated that these determinations were not appealable, and therefore they were forced to file suit. The contractor later lifted the suspension but claims the home health care company owes millions in overpayments. Ultimately, the home health care company was forced to close, but they do have this ongoing litigation. The causes of action for this class action are, one, declaratory relief under the Federal Declaratory Judgment Act with a finding the Medicare contractor knowingly and willfully violated federal laws and regulations. Two, tortious interference with an existing contract for the Medicare contractor's failure to exercise due care in performance of duties. And three, 
violation of procedural due process rights for failure to follow appropriate procedures before suspending payments for clerical errors and policy misinterpretations. In the past, I mean, there's been other mandamus cases to request relief to compel HHS to provide the healthcare provider with an administrative hearing within a reasonable time. We all know about the backlog. Again, but the healthcare provider is complaining that the contractor is incorrectly applying inconsistent guidance and flawed determinations of physical physician care made by non-physicians. The healthcare provider is at the third level of appeal before an ALJ, but at this level, recoupment can no longer be suspended. As the lawsuit notes, an ALJ hearing and decision is to be issued within 90 days of the request being received, but obviously with this backlog, we all know that that's not the case. It will be very, very interesting to keep track of this case and see where this goes. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Nicole, very much. That was healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel. Nicole is a partner in the Potomac Law Group. And coming up at about 11 minutes after the hour in your time zone, you're going to hear from Alan Fink, Sam Nick, David Glazer, Dr. John Hall, and Shannon DeConda. This is Monday, it's July 15th, and you're listening to Monitor Monday. Stand by. Whether you are dealing with Medicare or private insurers, you need to understand how to best approach denials. And now you will, thanks to an exclusive Rack Monitor webcast led by nationally recognized healthcare attorney David Glazer. This important webcast will provide you and your team with useful legal arguments for responding to denials. Learn proven strategies to best package your appeals, including how to write effective appeal letters and execute smart legal approaches. Join healthcare attorney David Glazer for the exclusive Rack Monitor webcast. Learn proven strategies for building a better appeal, improving letters, arguments, and process. It's Wednesday, July 24th at 12.30 p.m. Eastern. Click on the upcoming webcast tab in today's broadcast to register and save $40 by entering the coupon code MONDAY at checkout. Thanks, Clark. And good news, you and your team can benefit from the latest compliance and regulatory education when you subscribe to the Rack Monitor Educational Webcast Series. Sign up now for a free three-day trial. Click on the tab above or visit the Rack Monitor bookstore. And now for the Monitor Monday Risky Business Report, here is healthcare attorney David Glazer. And David, good morning. What's risky today? Good morning, Chuck. Trusting Medicare contractor policies. You should be able to, but you can't. So thanks to Sharon for sending me WPS's deeply flawed split shared evaluation and management policy. Under the links from David tab, you can click on the second link, which is a PDF with comments, where I've marked up a copy of the policy. Now, first, remember that even Medicare manuals are not binding and publications from contractors are lower on the regulatory hierarchy. Since the regulations don't manage split and shared visits at all, Chapter 12 of the Claims Processing Manual is the only source of information we've got. The WPS policy describing the manual makes several important mistakes. So if you follow along under the tabs, if you look by a circled blue one, it correctly states that a shared visit is proper when the physician provides any face-to-face portion of an E&M encounter with a patient. The quote by the blue two is accurate, so I won't blame WPS, but I want to emphasize 
that the assertion that a split visit requires the physician to perform a, quote, substantive portion, unquote, of the work appears in a section of the claims processing manual that discusses nursing home visits. A shared visit can't be billed in a nursing home, so no rational person would look to a sniff discussion for information about shared visits in the hospital. This misfiled text claims that a shared visit requires the physician to perform a substantive portion defined as, quote, all or some of the history, exam, or medical decision-making. Note that this differs from the manual language, which states that any portion of a face-to-face encounter is sufficient. You can perform medical decision-making without a face-to-face encounter, for example. Now, the paragraph by the blue four opens by noting that both the physician and the non-physician practitioner must each personally perform some part of the E&M. So far, so good. This is where WPS goes off the rails. They assert that the physician and the NPP should each document their own work. Now, I could give them a pass because they only said should and not must, but there's absolutely no authority for that statement. The paragraph ends with a completely made-up rule. Quote, the non-physician practitioner documenting what the MDDO performed does not satisfy the split-shared requirements. Says who? Where's the requirement that a physician must personally document her work? Is transcription suddenly illegal? Of course not. The paragraph at the blue five indicates that you can combine time from the NP and the physician when billing by time. I hope that that's true, but I've historically believed that not to be the case. Then, by six is the bizarre claim that this policy applies exclusively to WPS, but not to CERT or RAC or other Medicare contractors. Now, there's only one Medicare program. Each contractor doesn't get to make up its own policy about shared and split visits. There's guidance in the manuals on this. Then there's this gem by the seven, the actual examples of permissible documentation. It says seen and examined passes muster, but patient seen does not. That suggests that the physician must do an exam. But a shared visit is allowed when the physician has any face-to-face encounter with the patient. Even the suspect substantive portion language says that performing the history, decision-making, or the exam is sufficient. No exam by the physician is necessary. Finally, my favorite. WPS says a note indicating, quote, the patient was seen and examined by myself and Dr. X is insufficient. The grammar is deficient. The note should say Dr. X and me but it's perfectly permissible for the NPP to document the physician's presence at the encounter. Chuck, the Thompson twins have a song that may be about this policy. Lies, 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 they're gonna get you. So back to you and happy Ides of July. (laughs) Thanks, David, very much. That was healthcare attorney David Glazer. David is a shareholder in the law firm of Fredrickson Byron in downtown Minneapolis. (laughs) 
Last Monday, we reported on the SEMA Verna blog post. It's still rattling providers, and to explain why, here is Dr. John Hall. Good morning, Dr. Hall. Good morning, and thank you, Chuck. Last week, in Part 1, I talked about rack audit risks associated with observation claims. Just to review, SEMA Verma stated that the racks must maintain a 95% accuracy score and less than 10% overturn rate. CMS hasn't defined either of those metrics, but the metrics should cause racks to issue denials based on objective documentation and move away from readily disputable denials based on soft findings. This week, I'd like to share predictions related to additional risk areas. The first large area includes diagnostic or therapeutic services with specific documentation requirements. All of these risk areas share a common theme, and that is documentation is either present or absent. If required documentation is absent, there is little hope of avoiding denials. An example of this type of bimodal requirement is shared decision-making. A RAC denial based on the quality or form of the shared decision-making may be successfully appealed, but a denial based on the absence of documented shared decision-making is unlikely to be successfully appealed. Another denial in the documentation requirement group is time-based exclusions. These are things like the well-known three-month exclusion after cabbage or 40-day exclusion after MI for implantable defibrillators. The final group of required documentation denials are what I call the inclusion criteria. An example of this is the requirement for an anti-embolic device during placement of a carotid artery stent. CMS is clear, no device, no payment. The next large area is one midnight inpatient surgical procedures. These procedures, including total knee arthroplasty, are subject to the requirements of the two midnight rule. Particularly high risk are invasive, minimally invasive procedures, such as interventional vascular, cardiology, and radiology. Providers have an excellent source, resource for evaluating this audit risk in these, for these claims in the PEPR. As an additional protection, all one midnight inpatient claims should be reviewed prior to billing. The third large group is observation services in the perioperative period. I won't elaborate on this group, but I'll remind listeners that observation requirements apply in the perioperative period. Listeners should review the Rack is Back Part 1 from last week. The fourth group is inpatient care for, for, for traditionally outpatient services. This treads close to prior Rack reviews using medical necessity and should be a smaller volume than other risk areas. High-risk services in this group include inpatient hyperbaric oxygen, dialysis, chemotherapy, and radiation therapy. Providers should use evidence-based guidelines and review all high-risk claims as well as sample intermediate and low-risk claims. The final group includes NCDs and LCDs. Many of these do not involve medical decision-making, and so they're prime targets for denial with limited appealability. To summarize, newly proposed RAC performance standards may mean more predictable risk associated with RAC audits. That predictability may come at the cost of lower appealability when there are denials. Providers must identify high-risk claims and prepare mitigation and appeal strategies. To recap these specific areas, observation services, particularly those in the perioperative period, one midnight surgical stays, surgical services requiring specific documentation of patient eligibility, NCD and LCD compliance, and last, the traditionally outpatient services provided as an inpatient. Thanks, Chuck, and back to you. Thanks, Dr. Hall. That was Dr. John Hall. Dr. Hall is the founder of the Aegeus Group. What does housing have to do with health? 
Ellen Fink Samnick now joins us to explain the connection between housing and health. Ellen also has a Monitor Monday listener survey. And good morning, Ellen. Good morning, Chuck, and happy Monday, everyone. Well, it's been a busy year for the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation addressing the social determinants. Along with their ongoing work, in May, they announced funding for the Gravity Project, a national collaborative to advance interoperable social risk and protective factor data. I'll be listening to tomorrow's Talk 10 Tuesday at 10 a.m. to hear the EMI project manager, Evelyn Gallego, discuss the details. But then came last week. RWJF released their 2019 annual message, taking a bold move. Instead of a general theme as 2018's putting our principles to work, 2019's message is our homes are the key to our health. Now they published a report focused on the four timely areas, connecting housing and health equity, addressing affordable housing, fostering generational wealth, and driving community-led investment. An additional section provides valuable data, funding, and resource information as the county health rankings, a collaboration of RWJF and the University of Wisconsin Population Health Institute. A personal favorite, the site offers health outcomes for every county in the U.S., among other resources. The Opportunity Atlas, a brand new site sponsored by the Census Bureau, Harvard, and Brown Universities, showing which U.S. neighborhoods offer children the best chance to exit poverty. And City Health Dashboard, which pinpoints health outcomes for the U.S., plus an array of other local housing solutions. Now, the data they showed revealed 38.1 million households are considered cost burdened, meaning they spend over 30% of income on housing. Of cost burdened households, 50% pay over half their income for housing. 4.6 million persons with asthma can link their illness to poor or unstable housing conditions as mold, dampness, or extreme cold. The outcomes? Well, we know it, frequent exacerbation, and of course, the need for emergency treatment and hospitalization, which means increased cost for the industry. Other industry reports validate equally compelling data, a significant increase of 50% in the number of hospitalizations for homeless adults across the U.S., 42% uninsured, with 32% insured by Medicaid, 52% of homeless patients hospitalized for mental illness or substance use alone, compared to 18% for non-homeless individuals. Industry stakeholders are collaborating to tackle the homelessness challenge. Housing is Health involved six organizations in Portland, Maine that funded a new clinic and 379 housing units. A new Baltimore, Maryland two-year pilot between the city and hospitals provides 200 housing units for individuals and families plus wraparound services. Kaiser is addressing homelessness in Atlanta, Baltimore, California, Denver, Honolulu, Maryland, Virginia, and Washington, D.C., The URL for the RWJF message is in the links for Ellen tab with other valuable housing resources. Now, housing is a clear priority, but what type of housing matters most to our listeners? So it's time for this Monday's Monitor Monday survey sponsored by the American College of Physician Advisors. Which of the following housing programs would be the most valuable for the clients served by your organization? Traditional independent community shelters, transitional short-term housing programs for individuals and families, 
local abandoned buildings purchased and owned by your organization converted into apartment units, expanded housing options for low-income recipients as persons on a limited fixed income, as the elderly, those receiving disability, dual eligibles, and other beneficiaries. Well, we'll check back with the survey in a bit. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Alan, very much. That was consultant and author Alan Fink-Samnick. And by the way, Alan has a new book on this subject. It's called The Social Determinants of Health, Case Management's Next Frontier. I have a copy of the book. It's excellent. And as Alan said, we'll have the results of the Monitor Monday Listener Survey later in the broadcast. What should you do when a government agent comes knocking on your door? Shannon DeConnell now joins us to report a true story. Good morning, Shannon. Good morning, Chuck, and good morning to everyone listening to the broadcast today. Unfortunately, stories such as this one are becoming more norm than exception. This provider's practice in his sunset years is now waging a battle after 46 years as a public servant in West Virginia providing family practice in a small town. He called me because he has now received findings, a DOJ uh, investigation accusing him of submitting false claims. Two years prior, an individual representing himself as a DOJ agent showed up at their office, flashed a badge, and demanded they turn over medical records. So what did they do? They turned them over right there on the spot. They didn't log them. They didn't count how many they sent, only their memories of the event. I interviewed our own great health law attorney, David Glazer, in last week's article and posed questions such as, did they have to even let the DOJ agent cross the threshold of the office? And thank you, David, for co-authoring. And by the way, his law firm has some great laminated reference cards to give to your staff on what to do if. Today, however, I want to focus on one other part of the story so you the false claims allegation. Would it shock you to know that the E&M encounters at the heart of the investigation were actually level two and level three encounters? You know, those providers who think coding conservatively will keep them off the radar, here is proof positive it won't. These encounters were billed with the 25 modifier and the DOJ claimed overuse. Wait, he's a family practitioner. He can't give an immunization or an antibiotic injection in his office without a 25 modifier. According to the DOJ, over a span of almost six years, his average use of the modifier was 30 to 35 percent. While 35 percent isn't a low percentage of time, it certainly isn't 50 or 60, which is typically what we would think of to lead to such an audit. The DOJ claims that the documentation didn't meet the expectations to support the 25 modifier, which led to false claims. Now, I've not seen the documentation. I do not know what procedures were built with the specific claims, but here is what we all know, and that's common sense. What does a family practitioner do? They are the gatekeeper of a patient's overall health, wellness, whether it's acute, chronic, preventive, or a combination of all the above. Do we really think that when patients came into the office for an injection or minor procedure that a good old doc practicing old school medicine for 46 years on his friends and neighbors really didn't do anything else for those, those patients? But to steal a line from David Glazer, not documented, not done, is not an entirely true statement. The work was still done. It just may not have been documented to the adequate specifications. My point being, false claims, eh, doubtful, poor and underdocumented encounters, much more probable. Documentation has evolved from being a communication tool between providers for continuity of care to in very cold, harsh reality, being a provider's defense. 
not just legally, mind you, but from a reimbursement perspective as well. Providers are expected to document what they did, why they did it, and ironically, speak it in a language that does not require a medical degree to interpret. This goes for the old docs and the young, the ones in large health systems to solo practice, the ones in metropolitan areas to the ones in rural towns treating their friends and neighbors. Chuck, unfortunately, I believe the number of providers getting such visits will continue to rise. We must all be diligent in performing compliance audits, providing education, and if and when they come knocking, know your rights and get a card from David Glazer. And with that, I'll turn it back over to you. Thanks, Shannon, very much. I was Shannon DeConda. Shannon is the founder and the president of the National Alliance of Medical Auditing Specialists. Of course, we know them as NamUs. And now it's time for the results of today's Monitor Monday Listener Survey. And once again, here is Alan Fink-Samnick. Wow, were you guys rocking this survey? So, which of the following housing programs would be the most valuable for the clients served by your organization? 5% said traditional independent community shelters. Just about 25% said traditional short-term housing programs for individuals and families. Right under 8% local abandoned buildings owned by your organization converted into apartment units and 62% expanded housing options for low-income recipients. We will see what the times will bring. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks very much. That's going to be a wrap for this edition of Monitor Monday. We want to thank you very much for being with us today. Special thanks to our outstanding panelists, Hannah DeConta, Nicole Emanuel, Alan Fink-Samnick, David Glazer, Dr. Ronald Hurst, Dr. John K. Hall. And remember, you can listen to all the Monitor Monday podcasts anytime, anywhere, and on any device, and it's absolutely free. You can listen to us on Stitcher, Apple, Spotify, and Google Play. And when you do, rate us. Give us a review. Until next Monday, I'm Chuck Buck, reporter for Monitor Monday and Rack Monitor. Have a great week, everybody. Monitor Monday is a presentation of Rack Monitor.